Revelation chapter 12. The title of this morning's message is The Woman, the Child, and the Dragon. And chapter 12 is in this uh, handful of chapters in the book of Revelation, starting with chapter 10, going all the way through chapter 15. And these passages, these chapters, are what we call parenthetical chapters. They're called that because they don't really advance the chronology very at all, but the Lord gives us these chapters to kind of introduce us to characters that are coming in the, in the, in, in the end-time scenario, and also giving us information on things that are going on during those specific times, roughly, okay? And so uh, this chapter that we're going to be looking at this morning, chapter 12, is one of those chapters where, if you remember, a couple Sundays ago, we started this seventh trumpet judgment, which, as you know, that was uh, in chapter 11, beginning in verse 15, was the seventh trumpet judgment. It's also called the third woe. And so now we are in this period where we're at the midpoint of the tribulation, getting ready to finish the last three and a half years of of world history before Jesus comes back physically to the earth for a thousand years in the millennial reign of Christ, and we will come back with him. And I'm really excited about that. I can't wait for that, but I'm looking more forward to the rapture, which could happen at any time. The Bible's very clear about that. There is imminency. And so we look forward to that. And so as we look at uh, chapter 12 this morning, it's going to be very, very interesting, very interesting. Before we even get into, I find this chapter kind of interesting because chapter 13 is going to introduce us to two of the characters in the Great Tribulation that are perhaps the most significant, other than Jesus, obviously, but he's in glory. But that is the beast, who we call the Antichrist and the false prophet. Those two characters are introduced to us in chapter 13. And I find it interesting that before these two characters are introduced, we find here in chapter 12, the one who is really the father of them, the father of lies, who is Satan. We see his history. We see his program, what his intention has been from the very beginning, since the inception of man, and certainly since Israel became a nation. And you'll notice that as we read this chapter, there's nothing in here about the church at all. This is all about Israel. And why is that? Because after the church is removed, we are in glory with Jesus. This time on the earth is about those who have rejected Christ, and God is going to deal also again with his people, the people of Israel. Right now they live in unbelief. They don't believe that Jesus came the first time. And it's going to make it more insidious because when the, when the Antichrist comes into power, they are going to openly receive him because he's going to be able to broker some kind of agreement to allow them to have their temple. And they're going to be totally ecstatic. Only the Messiah could do that. Or so they think. And so this chapter has nothing to do with the church at all. In fact, the church is not even mentioned till the end of the book. Because the church is not what is what's happening. The church is raptured. The church is in glory while this seven-year period of wrath, of the wrath of God, is going on on the earth. This is a very interesting book. John Walvoord said this concerning this 12th chapter. John Walvoord was uh, one of the foremost experts in biblical end times scenario is called eschatology. He said chapter 12 is the most symbolic chapter in the Bible's most symbolic book. And uh, I would agree with him. This, this chapter is full of symbols and, and, and things of that nature. Some of them are defined for us right within the chapter. And other things, we have to rely on the Old Testament scriptures to get an understanding of what those things are. And aren't you glad that God just doesn't, uh, he just doesn't leave you in the dark? But it does require you to go looking elsewhere in the Old Testament to find out what some of these things mean. You know, God means what he says, and he says what he means. When he needs to define something for us clearly, he'll just do it. He did that with the disciples. Jesus, remember, was speaking to his disciples, and they said, you know, um, they said, you know Jesus told them that uh, Lazarus was sleeping, or that he was dead. <laughs> or he said he was sleeping. And they're like, well, Lord, if he's sleeping, he does well. And he's like, no, guys, he's dead. And so he waited. He waited. 
But he's very clear on what he means, and he means what he says. I don't think we need to allegorize anything. We don't need to overly spiritualize anything. If we read it the way it's meant to be read, things are much clearer than if you do those other things. So I would encourage you to read the Bible that way, unless it lends itself to something else. And the context will make that very clear if you read it and think about it. There are seven personages that are mentioned in the book of Revelation, and we're going to see them in chapters 12 and 13. We're only going to look at the first five today. Uh, the, The woman clothed with the sun. This chapter speaks of a woman clothed with the sun. It speaks of a red dragon, uh, the male child. It speaks of the archangel Michael, the offspring of the woman. It speaks of the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth. And all of these things are going to be revealed to us either in the chapters that we are in or in other parts of the Old Testament. And so let that be an encouragement to you. It has often been said that the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed and the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. And certainly in chapter 12 this morning that is the case. We will see that. Let's look right at it. Verse 1. It says, now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. And when you read this, you're thinking, what is this all about? Certainly symbolic here. Certainly symbolic. And a sign is something that is a a mark or a token, something uh, uh, that's about to share an important truth. And um, this word occurs seven times in the book of Revelation, and most uh, five of those times, it's in the connotation of evil, in the context of evil. So signs coming upon the earth, five out of the seven times, it's in the context of evil. But two of them are referred to that are certainly not in that context, and one of them is the one we're looking at right now. This great sign, the Bible says, not just a sign, but a great sign, and that is the woman, and we'll find out who this woman is. And also, in chapter 15, verse 1, it gives us another sign, and this is the seven angels that are going to be pouring out their wrath, the the, the bowls of wrath, or the vials of wrath, depending on what version of the Bible you're reading. These seven last plagues that are going to come on the earth, but all other instances refer to signs either concerning the false prophet who we'll be talking about next next couple weeks or Satan or the beast who we often call the Antichrist. And yes, there is a demonic trinity. Did you know that? As we have God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, we also have a demonic trinity. See, Satan doesn't, he's not original at all. He only mimics that which God does. That's all he can do. There's no creativity And plus, he wants to deceive. So we have Satan, we have the beast or the Antichrist, and we also have the false prophet. And they all function very similar to one another. And so we're going to see this this great sign. It says in verse 1 here, it says, A woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. This woman, by the way, is not Mary. It's not Jesus' mother. Um. The woman who is pictured here could not be Mary, because as we'll see later on in the chapter, it speaks of the woman being persecuted by the devil and being given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness and be nourished for three and a half years, a time, times, and a half a time. Now Mary, and, and, and again, this is speaking of a yet future event, future events, and yet Mary has passed away nearly 2,000 years ago. So this is not about the Virgin Mary. It's speaking of events yet future to us. And this woman is the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel, and perhaps more specifically, the believing Jews in the Great Tribulation, not in, in, uh, including but not limited to the 144,000 that we read about in chapter 7. Those who were sealed, 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes. And notice that she was clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a garland of 12 stars. And in order for us to understand this symbolism, we need to, have, we need to read the Old Testament, uh, specifically the book of Genesis. And so if you would, turn with me to Genesis chapter 37. I'm going to read it for you, but you can turn there because we'll spend a few moments here. We're just going to look at the first 11 verses because we need to identify who this woman is. I told you it was Israel, but I want to prove it to you. Because anything in the Bible, we need to 
use, let the Bible be its best commentary, because it is. Let the Bible be its best commentary. In Genesis chapter 37, remember it was Jacob, or Joseph, excuse me, in all of his dreams that he dreamed. Notice what it says. Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. And this is the history of Jacob. And Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report on them to his father. Verse 3, now Israel loved Joseph more than all of his children because he was the son of his old age. And also he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. And so he said to them, Please hear this dream which I have dreamed. And there they were, binding the sheaves in the field. So he's unfolding this dream to his twelve brothers. Then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, Shall we indeed, shall you indeed reign over us, or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And that's one of the reasons why they sold him into slavery in Egypt. They, after hearing this dream, they were just at their wits' end. We're going to bow to you, daddy's favorite. You can, you can hear it. It happens every day, doesn't it? Oh, teacher's pet, daddy's favorite. And then he tells them a truth which is true, and they hate him for it. Then he dreamed another dream, verse 9, and he told it to his brothers. He says, look, I've dreamed another dream, and it gets even worse. He says, and this time the sun and the moon and the 11 stars bowed down to me. And so he told his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him. So Jacob rebuked his son Joseph and said, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. And so we see very clearly here, by reading this chapter, that the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars are nothing more than Jacob and Rachel and his eleven brothers, which comprise what? Israel. Israel. And we're going to see that this woman... It says, then she being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain. Actually, I I got ahead of myself there. This is the nation of Israel. Um, This woman is Israel. You remember in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. This is one we have on all of our Christmas cards. But notice Isaiah speaking to the Jews. And he says, for unto us... Unto us a child is born, unto us Jews a child is born, unto us a son is given. Notice, and the government will be upon his shoulders, his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And he goes on, and and this is about the nation of Israel. In John chapter 1, verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also of the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. This is all speaking of the Jewish nation, the Jewish people, their scriptures. It all came from them. The very Messiah came from the Jewish line. He could have picked any race, but he chose that which was most insignificant. Jesus said to them, he says, you know, I didn't choose you because you were this great company of people, this great nation. I chose you because you were least among all the nations. And I love the way the Lord does that. He always chooses the underdog. He never chooses that which thinks it's that great. He never chooses that's what, which is mighty. He always uses the weak things to confound the wisdom of the world. And also in Hebrews chapter 10, the author says, Therefore, when he, Jesus, came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you've prepared for me. In burnt offerings, sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me. The entire Old Testament was about Jesus Christ, the word of God, coming through the Jewish race, coming through the Jewish line. 
And finally, we see in John chapter 5, Jesus speaking to the Jews, and he said to them, he says, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. And the only scriptures they had at that time were the, was the Old Testament. Specifically, you know, Genesis through, through Malachi, or even uh, some of those other books might not even have been written yet. And so it speaks of the nation of Israel. Now go on to verse 2 there. It says, And then this woman, being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Now this nation of Israel, this woman that's portrayed, she cries out in labor and she's in pain to give birth. And, you know, when, when we look at this, it's really amazing because all throughout the Old Testament we see scriptures, prophecies spoken of when Jesus would come into the earth how he would come into the earth, through whom he would come into the earth. And there's very explicit details, very explicit details. And even before Jesus was born, the nation of Israel had already undergone great oppression, great uh, oppression. In Matthew, we find Herod the Great wanting to destroy him before he was even born, having heard the news that there was a prophecy that the Messiah would come through the line of Judah and from Bethlehem. So what does Herod do? This demon-possessed, I believe, man who was completely power-hungry, he decides to snuff out all the children two years old and younger in the town of Bethlehem in the surrounding areas to make sure that he takes out this king who was to be born, that, that we just read, this king, this everlasting father, this prince of peace. That was his desire. But Israel has always been in this time of, they've always been in pain. And up until Jesus' uh, birth, they went through untold agony all throughout their history. All throughout their history. Israel has endured a lot. In the Holocaust, in, in the 1940s, a Nazi Germany, over 6 million Jews were exterminated in gas chambers and ovens and mass graves. In 1948, they endured countless suicide bombings. And, and even uh, recently, it, it slowed down quite a bit because they built, um, they built electric fences, electronic and electric fences, to keep those suicide bombers from bombing, and that's done wonders. You remember back in the 90s and the early 2000s, there was all kinds of suicide bombings on buses and everything. It was happening a lot. But, you know, um, but we see Israel coming as a nation in 1948, the War of Independence. The very moment that they declared themselves a nation, immediately, immediately, there, were, there was a war. All the Arab nations, including Egypt, came against them on the very next day that they declaimed that they became a nation. There was the Sinai campaign in 1956, the War of Attrition in 1968, the Six-Day War in 67, the Yom Kippur War in 73, the Lebanon War in 82, the Gulf War in 91, the Second Lebanese-Lebanon War in 2006, and ever since then we've had president after president, United States presidents, trying to broker a deal, and it's a futile thing. It's a noble concept. They've tried so hard to have peace deals and offer two-state solutions. And many of those deals want them to give up their, the Golan Heights. If you've never been to Israel, it's a wonderful uh, time to go. Go this next year, if you can, in March. But the Golan Heights is a strategic place. It's up on a mountain, and it's right on, the, right on the border of Syria and Lebanon. It's a very strategic place. Israel should never give that up, because then you have the enemy's tanks pointing down to you in the valley. Not a good idea if you're a person of strategy. And yet, so many have tried to get them to give up that land, give up that land. So many trying to pressure them, even presidents. Thankfully, our president has not done that. He understands the things that are important to them, and he's not going to pressure them to give that up. He's going to help them. So Israel has always had to fight. And this little piece of land about the size of New Jersey, this little piece of land is theirs by divine decree, by God. God gave it to them, and Satan and the enemies of Israel, whom he has inspired, want it as well, and they will fight to the death for it. And I find it interesting that although it's mentioned 500 times, at least in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, Jerusalem is not mentioned in the Quran at all. 
That's the, that's the Muslim's holy book, the Quran. Jerusalem's not mentioned. And yet it's something they hold to be so reverential, yet it's not even included in their book. Kind of makes you scratch your head, doesn't it? Because it belongs to the Jews. It always has. And it always will. In fact, I love what it says in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 23. Who does that land belong to? It belongs to God. It says, the land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. This is the Lord speaking. You are strangers and sojourners with me. And then in Genesis chapter 12, when God spoke to Abraham to bring him out of the Ur of the Chaldees, The Lord finally appeared to him and showed him all these things and gave him this wonderful covenant. And he said, he appeared to Abraham and said in verse 7, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. It belongs to God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything on the earth belongs to him. And all he wanted was this state, this country about the size of New Jersey. This is my land. You can have the rest of it. All I want is this, and I've got a plan for that land. And boy, the devil goes, if that's important to you, it's important to me. And I'm going to thwart every attempt I can have to have anything going on there that's of any value. And the devil knows the Bible better than all of us. He knows what's going to happen. He knows what's coming. He studied the book of Revelation. He knows it, folks. He knows his time is... Can you imagine how unnerving that must be? That in the end, you lose. No matter what. There is no one more powerful than God. If you're being oppressed, if you're being beaten up, if you're being um, oppressed by the devil, struggling with sin, guess what? His day is coming. Guess what, folks? He loses. And I'm looking forward to the day when the nations, everyone will look upon him narrowly. They'll look upon him like this. Is that the one who caused all the problems? That's his end. And I'm looking forward to that day. I'm really looking forward to that day. But Israel has always been in pain. It's been in labor all of its existence. It's always, and it will continue to be in great pain until the very end, before the return of Jesus Christ to the earth and his second coming. Satan hates her. He hates Israel. And guess what? The media hates her too. The media hates Israel They are very extremely biased against Israel. I remember one time I was uh, actually working at Xerox and I had the chutzpah to send a letter to the editor of CNN. (laughs) Because all of their, it is so blatantly biased against Israel. They hate Israel. And I sent them a letter and I laid it out. I was very nice about it. I include scripture. Never heard a thing. Not even even one of those canned emails we got your response. Thank you very much. We'll review it. And, you know, if we want any questions, you know, have any questions, we'll email you back. Nothing. Crickets. Didn't even get a thank you for, you know, anything. So, Israel, this woman, this Israel is going to give birth to a child, a male child. But first, it says, in another, verse 3, it says, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. It's interesting, as we look through the scripture, there are many different names for Satan. And here is just a, a list of some of them. This may be most of them. But he's, a, he's the serpent. He's the dragon. He's the devil. He's, the, he's Satan. He's the day star. The son of the morning, the anointed cherub that covers in Ezekiel 38. He's also called the tempter, the ruler of demons, Beelzebul, the evil one, the enemy. He's a liar. He's the father of lies. He's a murderer, the ruler of this world, the god of this age, the angel of light, believe it or not. Belial, he's the prince of the power of the air. He's an adversary, and he's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And we see the very first name of Satan in Genesis chapter 3. We see it. Genesis chapter 3, what does it say? After the fall of man, or actually before that, I'm sorry. It says, now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And you remember that the, the serpent, who was devil incarnate, came and deceived Eve. God had told them, stay away from this one thing. You've got this whole beautiful garden to eat. I've given you everything you need, but I want you to stay away from one thing. Aren't you glad that God had to give a choice? He gave a choice. And I bet that fruit looked really good too. 
And I, I bet, especially once God says, I don't want you to eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, all of a sudden it became everything. You know, it's like everything faded out and it zoomed right in. And it's like, oh, it looks so beautiful. I wonder what it feels like. I wonder, let me just touch it. Just let me touch it. No, don't touch it. No, go ahead. Don't, no, you do it first. No, you shut up, shut up. They grab it finally and then they're, they're looking at it and they're caressing that fruit. Wow, that's really beautiful. I wonder what it tastes like. Well, you eat it. No, I'm not going to eat it. Shut up. Then they take it. Disobeying the command of God. But he's known as a serpent. He's cunning. And the Bible says that we are to be as gentle as doves, but as wise as serpents. The serpent is very wise. He's an old entity. He's been around for a long time. And do you think he's learned a lot in the, in the 7,000 years that he's been around? Since the beginning? Do you think he's learned a lot? Do you think he knows your history? Do you think he knows your ancestors? He knows exactly who your ancestors are. He could tell you whether you came from Shem, Ham, or Japheth. He was there when they were born, and he tripped them up. He seduced them to sin, and he's been doing it ever since. Aren't you looking forward to the day when he's canned? Looking forward to the day when he's put in a slammer. It gets even better, though, because he's not just going in a slammer. He's going into the lake of fire forever. He will burn. He'll never die. We know this to be the devil or Satan because Revelation here in in chapter 12 tells us in verse 9, it says, it it defines who this is. So we don't need to worry about who this person is. We know the woman is Israel. The great dragon, it says in verse 9, was cast out. And he defines it, that old serpent from Genesis chapter 3, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. Notice, he deceives the whole world. After the church is removed, the world is going to be deceived. And that's why it's going to be so difficult. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for before you give your heart to Christ? Are you waiting so maybe you think, you think to yourself, well, if the church is removed, then I'll give my heart to the Lord. Well, how do you know that? The deception is going to be so great. You have no idea. I have no idea. Have you ever been deceived by the devil himself? Very few of us, the devil could, could care less. He sends his demons, lesser demons. Believe me, the only person who's been tempted physically by, Jesus, or by the devil himself is Jesus himself. We have no idea the temptation and the deception and the pull on our flesh when you're tempted by him specifically. Thank God we won't have to, he can't do that to us and and, and have victory. I'd hate to be the one who has the bullseye on my head where Satan has to come after me. Because believe me, you're going to go through it. Even though God is with you. So the dragon was cast out, that old serpent who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth. We're going to see him at this time in history, in the tribulation period. He will be cast out, and guess what? His angels, these are the demons. These are demons. They are going to be cast out of heaven. And you may be wondering to yourself, wait a minute, I thought that, how can they be in heaven? Well, you can read Job, the, the angels, the, even the, the, the fallen angels can appear before God even right now. Satan can approach the throne of God right now. Can you believe that? That's what the Bible says. Read Job chapter 1, beginning in verse 7, I think it is. And then read the first chapter of Job chapter 2. He comes right before him, and he's the accuser of the brethren. He's accusing us before God day and night. Did you see what he did? He claimed to be a born-again believer. And look at him, he's over there drinking a beer. Look at him, he's over there smoking a joint. Look at that. Can you believe that, Lord? He He calls upon your name, but he's looking at stuff he shouldn't be looking at. Accusing, accusing, accusing. Notice, this great dragon had seven heads and ten horns, seven diadems on his head. It's clear that the beast or the Antichrist will come from a revived Roman Empire. We know in Daniel chapter 2, God gave to Nebuchadnezzar a dream and he defines this statue and it really defines all the 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 world empires throughout history up to the very end. And he started with Nebuchadnezzar, and the head was of gold. That was Nebuchadnezzar. And then the the the, the silver part of the of the breast was Persia. The thighs of brass were were from Greece, and the legs of iron were Rome. The Roman Empire ended. But there's going to be a revived Roman Empire coming 
soon to a theater near us. And it's going to be a revived Roman Empire, probably stemming from the European Union, for all we know. There's already ten nations there. But Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. Daniel defines it for them. And then finally, um, and, 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 and Daniel goes on and he, he has a vision as well of, of this time that we're looking at right now. Back, you know, uh, you know, in the 5th and 6th century B.C., Daniel gets this vision in Daniel 7. And it says, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceeding strong. Notice the imagery. Notice the words that are used. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It, has di- it was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Does that sound familiar? We just read it. Ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up from among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And here, in this, and there, in this horn, were eyes like the eyes of a human, and a mouth speaking pompous words. Who is this little horn? It's the beast. We know him as the Antichrist. He's coming. He's going to be a very well-spoken man, I'm sure. In Daniel chapter 7, Again, in verse 21, in another vision, Daniel says, I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came, which is a a reference to God, and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the other kingdoms, shall devour the whole earth. And he he gives the description again in verse 24. The ten horns, he even defines it for us. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this last kingdom, this revived Roman Empire. And and when... um, And another shall rise after him, and he shall be different from the first ones, and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words. And down in verse 25, it says, Then the saint shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half a time. You're going to see that phrase. We've talked about it. You're going to see it. It's referring to this last half of the tribulation period, this 36-month period, or three and a half years. 1,260 days. 42 months. However you want to slice it. And then in Revelation chapter 13, which we're going to get into next week, what, what does the very first verse say? Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. Well, you know who he is now, but notice, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his, head, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. We're going to define who that is in the coming weeks. Notice in verse 4, though, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth, to devour her child as soon as it was born. This third of the stars being dragged with his tail, stars are often called angels as well. And so when he draws a third of the stars, that's a third of the angels in heaven went with this guy. Think of what a deceiver he is. And think of the madness of it. He is a created being, and yet he has the chutzpah to say that I'm going to put my throne above the throne of God. I am going to be the one that's going to be worshipped. And then he, got, you know, he becomes a rock star, and everybody follows him on Twitter. <laughs> right? He's got a great Facebook page. Third of the angels go, wow, man. It's amazing to me that it appears that some of these angels have free will. They can, others don't, but these apparently do. They have free will, just like you. What a dangerous thing free will is. Choose wisely. Choose wisely. And notice, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth. This woman, Israel, was about ready to give birth to the Messiah. All the prophecies have already been told about his birth, and now it was coming time. So you see in chapter 12, it's like a panorama from the very beginning of Israel's history, from their inception, right up until the very end. We're going to see it in very... uh, uh, abbreviated form here. And so she's ready to give birth and he's coming, this, this, this dragon, to devour her child as soon as it was born. And we see the, the part of that when Herod tried to kill Jesus by ordering all the infants. It's recorded for us in chapter 2. You remember that. You can read it. We're not going to take the time to go through there, but Herod was so jealous of 
of, of, his, of his own power. He was so protective over it, and his, he was willing to murder anyone who might be a threat to his throne, so much so that the Roman emperor, Augustus, once joked, and he said this, it's better to be Herod's pig than his son, because he murdered his sons. He murdered his wife. He was a murderer. He was a madman. He was a narcissist. <laughs> he was a power-hungry man. And when Herod's attempt failed to kill Jesus, the devil used the Roman Empire and the religious Jews even, the the Pharisees, the Sadducees. He even went to one of Jesus' own disciples, of his 12 disciples. He chose one. He knew Judas. Before Judas was even born, the devil knew his father, and he was watching. And when Judas was born and he saw this young man and his characteristics and how he was forming, the devil says, oh, I can use that one. He really, likes, he really likes money, and he's a thief too. I'm going to use him to betray the Son of God. I'm going to use him. And certainly that ultimately did it. Satan never stopped. From the very beginning, just pounding, crunching, smashing all the way. He's not going to give up, but one day he will be taken And again, I can't wait for that day. But notice in verse 5, she bore a male child. This woman, Israel, she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. Who is this male child? Who is it? It's Jesus. Jesus Christ. And he's going to rule with a rod of iron. What does it say in Psalm 2? Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion, God the Father says, and I will declare the the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. The rod of iron, here it is. We look in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, we see who this male child is. He's going to rule with a rod of iron. And it's not only there, but it's also in Revelation chapter 2, when Jesus was dictating a letter to the the church at Thyatira. What did he say? And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. And he, speaking of Jesus shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel. Also, I have also received from my Father. Amazing. And then at the very end of the book of Revelation, when Jesus comes back on his white horse from heaven to the earth, what does it say? Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. Do you think the millennial reign is going to be all peaceful and just pristine? For a good part, a part yes. But is, is there going to be still rebellion and uprisings? You better believe it. It'll be a blessing for us, but it's going to be not an easy time. Jesus will still reign on the throne and he'll have to rule with a rod of iron. Guess what? There'll be no impeachings going on. There'll be no congressional hearings. He's going to say it and it's going to be accomplished. It's not going to be, you know, you don't have to wait for three months for something to happen. You know, he can, (laughs) I won't go there. Um, When he says it, it's going to happen and it's going to be immediate. Immediate. And notice that this child was caught up. When did that happen? When was this male child, Jesus Christ, when was he caught up? In the Greek, it means harpazo. Does that word ring a bell? Harpazo. To be caught up, to be snatched up. When did that happen? In his ascension. Right? After his death on the cross, three days later he rises, 40 days later he ascends from the Mount of Olives. He goes to heaven. And that's where he's been ever since. He says, I'm, gonna, I'm coming for you. I'm coming back that where I am, you may be also. That's when he comes in the rapture. And we will meet him in the clouds and our bodies are transformed. That's what 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is all about. In fact, in verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians, try to say that critically, in 1 Thessalonians, um, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 17, what does it say? It says that we which are alive and remain will be caught up. We will be harpazoed. We will be snatched up off the earth. Same thing happened when, uh, in the book of Acts. 
with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. After he baptized the Ethiopian eunuch, the Lord took Philip and translated him, put him somewhere else. Immediately, just translated him quickly. We know that this word caught up. So Jesus was caught up. And I'll have you notice that in the very first, look between verses 5 and 6 and what you're going to find conspicuously absent in this very Jewish chapter. Between verses 5 and 6, you can put a little arrow and put the church. The church is not visible. It's not even in this at all. But where the church fits in chronologically is right in between verses 5 and 6. Because what happened after Jesus was caught up to his throne? Pentecost, Acts chapter 2 and 3. The church was born. And when the church is raptured, because we look at the very next verse, and then the woman fled into the wilderness. This is speaking of an event that's going to occur during the Great Tribulation period, but by that time, the church has already been removed in the rapture, right? So in between verses 5 and 6, we have this very conspicuously absent thing that happened called the church, you and I. Then the woman, verse 6, she fled into the wilderness where she was placed she has a place prepared by God, notice, and they should feed her there 1,260 days. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? What is 1,260 days? It's 42 months. It's three and a half years. Commit that to your memory because you see it over and over again, and it's speaking of this last three and a half year period of really unprecedented wrath upon the earth. It was bad before in the first three and a half, but now it's like the dial was probably on six or five, all of a sudden, it's breaking. It's cranked up to 11 when 11 doesn't exist. The dial is being stripped right out. Then the woman fled into the wilderness. The woman, Israel, during this tribulation period, she is going to flee and to a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Again, notice the reference to 1,260 days. Now, if you look at this, you'll notice in the... um, You'll see right here a map of Jordan, and here's Israel. Right up here is the Dead Sea. Over here is Israel. This is the Sea of Galilee way up here in the north. But in the south, there's a sea of uh, the Dead Sea. And then right below that south is a place in Jordan, which we know as Petra. And Petra is going to be the place we believe that, that because the scriptures clearly, we believe, identify that place as a place where the Jews will run and they will hide from the Antichrist. They will be hunted people. The Antichrist is going to seek to destroy them. He's going to be in such a fury. And by the time that this really happens, he is going to be indwelt by Satan himself. The Bible tells us that he's going to be, receive a deadly wound. And somehow, probably at that time, he is going to revive. And have you known anybody to be possessed by a devil, much less the king of devils himself? And do you think he's going to sprout horns? Oh, no. He's going to be so smooth. He's going to speak so well. He's going to look really good. He's not going to look like we think, folks. People aren't going to be able, on the earth at that time, they're not going to be going, oh, that's obviously the Antichrist. I saw a horn stick out. No. Nothing like that. He's going to be the man of the hour. Everyone is going to praise him. Oh, all the things that we've wanted, he's given us. The Jews are going to be ecstatic. But he will ultimately show his colors. But the Jews are going to hide in this area in Jordan, in Petra, we believe. In fact, in Isaiah uh, 63, it says this. Speaking of this place that the Jews will hide, it says, Who is this who comes from Edom? Because Petra is in the land of Edom, or in the land of Basra, in current-day Jordan. I've never been there. Has anybody here been to Jordan? I know Virginia has. And, you know, I would love to go there sometime, because that place is stocked, from what I understand. Christians, for Many, 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 many years have been going into those caves and hiding Bibles and, 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 and goods and things that they can, they can use. And the, the, the natural man who's an unbeliever is like, oh, let them do whatever they want. It's a big deal. They don't believe this. 
<laughs> but when it happens, the Jews are going to go there and find that they've got everything for them. And there may be other provisions that God will give them that we know nothing about. But notice, who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one, speaking of Jesus, is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. That's who it is. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? The question is asked, and Jesus will reply, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger, trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes, for the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. God is going to intervene. Jesus, when he returns, he is going to intervene, and he's going down to Basra. He's going to go down to Petra and he's going to deliver those Jews who have been hiding from the Antichrist, whom he has marvelously prepared. I love in Micah chapter 2, this is really wonderful. Micah says in chapter 2, verse 12, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob, speaking of the woman. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep of the fold. Like a flock in the midst of their pasture, they shall make a loud noise because of so many people. That word fold, when he says, I will put them together like the sheep of the fold, the very word fold is the word Basra. This location where Petra is. Where they will be provided for. You remember in Matthew 24, Jesus said this. In his Olivet Discourse, he says, therefore, and he's speaking to his disciples, the Jews, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, who we know is the coming Antichrist, when he stands in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down and take anything out of his house, and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing baby in those days. And pray that your flight be not in the winter or on the Sabbath, because travel is going to be very difficult if you're a pregnant woman. And traveling in the wintertime is really bad because it's, it's really cold and sometimes there's even snow on the ground. And traveling on the Sabbath, forget it. Nothing's moving. You're going to walk. And unless, and he says, for then there will be great tribulation. Jesus said this. Such has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. And you've heard this before. And unless those days were shortened, no one should survive it. Unless he came back in his second coming to end it, nobody would survive. Because we've already seen, I think, I think it was like by the fifth trumpet, over 58% of the earth is dead. At least 58%. And why Petra? In Daniel chapter 11, I found this. This is really awesome. It says at the time of the end, Daniel is being clued in on end times prophecy. And, and, and he's told, Daniel is told, it says, at the, and this is Daniel 11 verse 40, at the time of the end, we're talking about the time of the end, are we not? At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, speaking of the Antichrist, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships, and he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. He shall also enter the glorious land, which we know as Israel, and many countries shall be overthrown, but notice the ones that aren't, but these shall escape from his hand, Edom and Moab and the prominent people of Ammon. Where is Petra? It's in Edom. That's where it is. For some reason, he just, it's just going to escape him. He's not going to be able to, to get into that area for some reason. We don't understand all the implications of that. Those who are going to see it firsthand will know, but we don't know. But notice what happens in verse 7. Satan is thrown out of heaven. Just before we read about the beast and the Antichrist and the false prophet in Revelation chapter 13, we finally see this part, this part when the heavens are going to rejoice. Notice, and war broke out in heaven, and Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. Who is the dragon? It's Satan. We already know that. It's already been defined for us. So we now we see this Michael, and he's going to fight against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. Michael is the archangel. He's a very powerful angel, very powerful. We see him in history throughout the Bible. He's referred to as an archangel. 
In fact, in Jude, what does it say? <laughs> Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dare not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. So this very powerful angel is going to be fighting against Satan and against those angels that will ultimately rebel, and God will kick them out of heaven. And I love what it says in Daniel chapter 12 too. What does it say? That's one of the reasons why Daniel, the book of Daniel, has been so hated. There's been no book of prophecy that has been more attacked than Daniel. God gave to this wonderful man, Daniel, such great vision and very specific instructions about things that were going to happen many hundreds of years after he would pass from the scene. And they were so precise, in fact, that many tried to assume that Daniel was written as a book much later after those things have already occurred so that somebody could write it and make it look like you know they knew what they were talking about. Hey, listen, if the God you serve doesn't know all things, then we might as well give up. If we, if we don't believe what he says, does he have the ability to speak things before they happen. I think he's shown himself to be very capable of doing that. Thank you very much. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. There's no one like him. It's very easy for him to speak. That's why we're reading this. These are things that are coming. Has Jesus lied to us yet? Has he lied to you? The devil will lie to you. Your flesh will lie to you. But Jesus will never, ever lie to you. It's, he's not even capable of it. People lie when they, because they don't know the truth. But because he is the truth, he can tell it like it is. Do you know what an incredible advantage that is? You hide, you, you lie to cover things up that you don't know. But when you know all things, why is there reason to lie? I can tell you exactly what's going to happen, and you can try and stop it. But guess what? When it, all, when it comes, it's amazing to me. If you read about this stuff, there have been generals and, uh, in Israel, you know, the, the Eastern Gate, and people are trying to go in there and open that up, and Jesus said, hey, it's not going to happen. They've tried. They've all failed. For heaven's sake, it's just a, I've been there myself just a few months, you know, a month or so, a few months ago at the Eastern Gate right there, and I know there's a gate underneath there. Just get a construction crew, man. Just get a couple of backloaders and get it done. Try it. You will fail. Because when God says something, he means it, and he means what he says. Notice, verse 8, but they did not prevail. These demons, Satan and his demons, they did not prevail, nor was there any place found for them in heaven any longer. God always wins. He always prevails. Satan always loses. What team do you want to be on? Hopefully all of us in this room have chosen the right team. Today you have an opportunity to change your team if you're not on the Lord's team. They will be evicted from heaven and they've had the opportunity to stand before God and they're still there right now accusing us before God even at this very moment. But when this event occurs in, in the middle of the tribulation period, God's going to say, enough's enough. And when he sends him down to the earth, he is going to be so filled with fury. He's been kicked out of the place that he wants. He wants the throne of God. And, he's going to, and God's going to say, you know what? The time has come. Your eviction notice, stamped. See ya. <laughs> and off he goes, and a tail between the legs, angry, just wanting to kill somebody. Furious. Sorry, I'm a little worked up. I don't know if you noticed that trying to refrain myself but notice verse 9 the great dragon he was cast out that old serpent of old called the devil and satan who deceives the whole world he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him the fact that satan is cast out at this time is, is, a, is a woeful thing wouldn't you agree the earth has never seen anything like it you think it's bad now with everything that's going on when satan and his angels come to the earth and, and they can't go back up to heaven guess what this is where they hang out and you think things are bad now? It's going to get so much worse. So much worse. So that ought to spur within me a desire to share the truth with people. I don't want them to go through this time. Know Jesus today. Do not wait to, for tomorrow. You don't know what tomorrow holds. Your very breath is a gift from God. Don't spurn that offer of salvation and forgiveness. You've only got one chance 
And he's given you many opportunities. If you're breathing right now, you have the opportunity. Do not wait. Do not wait. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, there we have it again, they have accused them before our God day and night has now been cast down. And notice, and they overcame him by what? Three things, the blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives even to the death. And see, that's a wonderful ingredient for a child of God is to, you have overcome Satan by the blood of the lamb. If you're in Christ, he cannot possess you. He cannot, he can mess with you, but he cannot possess you. He can't take away your salvation. In John chapter 10, it says he holds you in the palm of his hand. And he says, nothing in heaven above or in earth beneath in hell or heaven, can pluck you out of his hand. If you're one of his, you are his forever. Even though you make mistakes and mess up, because I do it too, you are firmly in the grip of God. The Bible teaches assurance. Don't let anybody tell you, well, I don't know, you didn't tithe this week. You might not make it. I don't know, how much did you give? Ten grand, really? Wow. You, you might get halfway there. Well, you didn't give anything? Oh, you're, you're, on, a slipping, you're on a slip and slide all the way down, bro. Is that the way it works? No. He could care less about money. He loves you. He loves the souls of men and women. He loves us with an everlasting love. Do you know that? He loves you so much. I'm here to tell you, God loves you so much. Therefore, verse 12, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth. Why? <laughs> and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows he has a short time. When he comes to the earth, he knows. He's read the book. He knows. He can count to the days how much time he has left. One of his demons has probably got an iPhone going, you got 1,245 more days, boss. You better do something. Another day, another day, another day. And why are the heavens rejoicing? Because he's no longer there. He's no longer there to defile the heavens. And why woe to the earth? Because the devil has come down to you with great wrath. He knows he has a short time. And boy, is it going to get ugly then. It's going to get ugly. Now when the dragon saw it that that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. So here, Israel is just being pounded by this, this Antichrist. He's going to be, all the stops are going to be removed. And the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place. Where is this place that she is going to be? In Petra, we believe. And who are these two wings of a great eagle? We really don't know. But God used that same terminology when he brought Israel out of Egypt. He used the same exact terminology when he offered, when he did a great deliverance for them out of Egypt. He says in Exodus 19, verse 4, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. There are other scriptures that talk about that too, but God is going to deliver them. It's going to be a huge operation, and God is going to do it all by himself. And notice that when she goes to this place in the wilderness, in Petra, we believe, she's going to be nourished for a times, time, and a half a times. In other words, three and a half years. And Isaiah, uh, let me bring this up here. In Isaiah chapter 33, beginning in verse 16, it says, he will dwell on high, and his place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. Bread will be given him. His water will be sure. And God is going to provide for them everything they need in this rock city of Petra. Believe me, it is a fortress. If there's any place where you need to hide, that's a really good place. But the woman was given two wings. Notice a time and a times and a half a time. So this, I love this. The serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Now it's interesting. Here is, the, here is Jordan and what you see circled there is Petra. In Jordan there are many different water sources around now, could it be? This is just conjecture, okay? But I believe when he says here that 
So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman. Obviously, Satan is going to come after them. He's going to cause something to happen, to cause water to come. And some like to, some think of this a little bit differently, but I think reading it plainly is, makes a lot of sense to me. Because they're in this rock city of fortress, and there, I believe there's only one way in and one way out when you get in there. And he's going to try to do whatever, whether it's through, I believe it's going to be water somehow. Maybe, you know, in that side, in that um, area of the country, wadis are very, they happen all the time. A wadi is when water comes down from a, a, a cliff or, you know, mountains. And right in the middle of the mountains, there's a low area and the water will come rushing and it'll all congregate and it'll come down like a flood. It could be that Satan uh, will, will take an advantage of them, maybe reroute the water, maybe have a helicopter come and knock out something to cause something water to be diverted. But there's water sources all over this area, and especially right there to the west of Petra. There is a big water reservoir there, and there's tributaries to that. Could it be that somehow he's going to divert that water somehow? Don't know. It's just conjecture. But he's going to try and snuff them out in this impregnable place. And he's not going to be successful. In fact, this is what one of those dams looks like. It's in the northern part, just um, quite a few miles north, actually, of Petra. But there is a, a dam there. It's called the Mujib Dam. And um, there are other dams like this. Could it be that he just, you know, he's so frustrated and angry? Maybe he just has a couple of... Uh, Helicopters take out that dam, and the water just comes flooding in. But the earth helps the woman. Probably an earthquake. The earth opens up. Have you ever seen that happen before? In the book of Exodus, do you remember when Korah and his gang came against Moses and Aaron? And there was a big uh, power grab, basically. And God says, we'll find out who I'm really with. (laughs) And the Lord allowed the next day the earth to open up and swallow all of the guys who, the, the host, all the sons of Korah and those who were against the Lord and the earth shut up over them. Do you think he could do that again? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and all they that dwell therein. He is able to have things happen on his timetable. An earthquake can happen just like that. And do you think the Lord can trigger something like that? It must drive people over there crazy. At his will, at his bidding, he can do all those things. And the dragon, notice, was enraged with the woman. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. Those are the, uh, those are the believing Jews other than the 144,000. He's like, you know what, those ones in Petra, I'm going to go after all of them. You, you, you ever see a man in, in insanity and rage? He just, he's like, if I can't get them and, 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 and it didn't work, I'm going after someone else. I just got to destroy him. I got to kill him. That's his, that's his motive. Uh, that's his Emo, that's his desire. He's filled with rage. And he's filled with rage. He knows his time is short. And aren't you glad that the Lord, that you were on his side? He cannot do anything to you, folks. God can allow him to bring you in a trial and go through a difficulty. That's certainly true. We see that. It's biblical. He can allow that to happen. And when you are going through trials and tribulations, how do you respond to those? For those who are weak in the faith, unfortunately, sometimes they just say, you know what, I'm done. I'm going to Buddha. I'm going to go up on a mountain in Tibet and rub the silver belly, the gold belly. Going to get the chopsticks. And I'm going to go up there and I'm going to become a monk. I've had enough of this Christianity stuff. But see, God knows, and he loves every single person. It doesn't matter who you are. He loves those people in Nepal. He loves those people in Tibet. He loves those people in Iran and Iraq. He loves those people. It doesn't matter who you are. If you were born in this world, you have the image of God upon you. He doesn't look upon anyone and say, you're, you're too far gone he doesn't say it. Even the most, most horrible criminals. Even Adolf Hitler, if he was in his last moments and he bowed to his knees in that bunker before he shot himself, if he bowed to his knee in that bunker and said, Lord, I have been a fool all my life. Please forgive me for what I've done. I receive you. I, I confess my sin. 
If that did happen, guess what? Hitler's in heaven if he was genuine. I don't know that that happened, but if it did, God can take the most despicable act, the most despicable human being that ever lived, and he's like, I love you. That's the kind of love, folks, that I can't escape. Can you escape such great love? Have you done something so bad that God can't forgive me? Oh, believe me, he's forgiven people who have done way worse. He's not going to stop. His love for you is great. Don't give up on him. And folks, in these times that we live in, and we'll end here, stay close to the Lord Jesus Christ. Stay close to his word. Invite people to come that they can hear the things that you're hearing. Invite people to come. Invite your neighbors. Invite your coworkers. Love on them. Tell them the truth. Don't allow yourself to get lukewarm. In this world that we're living in, everything is working against us. Do you understand that? Everything that we're seeing, everything that we're hearing is to tear down what you believe to tear down what we know is in the word of God. It's, it's there by design. The devil has got a control over it all. He wants to soften you to where you're not even, you don't even care anymore. He wants to make you so jaded that you no longer care anymore. What's the difference? All my friends are doing it. Listen, you've got to fight the good fight. If there's a time right now, you've got to stand up and you've got to stick your stake in the ground and say, Lord, I'm done with myself. I'm done with this old man. I'm done with this old nature. I want to follow you with all my heart. Lord, save me to the uttermost and give me everything I need to reach people, to tell them of your great love, of your offer of forgiveness. Don't let yourself be cold. One of the hallmarks of this time that we live in is people are growing cold. The church is growing cold. We mustn't let it happen. Where is your heart? Where's my heart? Serve Christ. And do it because you love him. Because let me tell you, his love for you is beyond any of our comprehension. Even right now, any earthly love that you've experienced from a father, from a mother, from a spouse is nothing compared to the author of love. No one will love you like he loves you. Let's stand. Father, we thank you for this very sobering chapter. And Lord, these next few weeks, we're going to be talking about your very enemy. Lord, and this enemy is a defeated foe already. He is defeated. And ultimately, we will see him being defeated ultimately. But God, right now, we see things difficult. We are going through many difficulties. And Lord, we ask by your grace that you would fill us that you would empower us, Lord, that you'd baptize us by your spirit, with your spirit, Lord. Give us boldness in the day that we live in, God. Help us to love your word. Open our eyes again. Open our hearts again, God. Set us on fire again. Lord, how we need you. We're desperate for you, Jesus. Please, don't let us have our own way, God. Don't let us fall into complacency. Don't let our hearts grow cold, Lord. Forgive us, wash us, cleanse us, heal us, use us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen.